Today on Growth Culture, how does customer experience end up spurring sales growth? I'm your host, Adam Connor, and that's the focus of the day with my guest, Tabitha Dunn. She's a real dual threat as the chief customer officer of Ericsson, both serving as head of customer experience and global sales excellence. Today, we talk about human-centered design and how businesses could be better at it, plus how sales and CX should intertwine in the future. As a bonus, we'll learn what's common about the world's best salespeople. This is Tabitha Dunn. Tabitha, thanks so much for joining me. How you doing? I'm doing great, Adam. How are you? I'm doing really, really well um, because today I get to chat with you about a topic which is critically important to like that broad word that is growth that I like to explore here, um, but from an angle that I am not an expert in, nor have I gotten the chance to speak to many folks who are experts. I'm talking about, of course, customer experience. And you've got this fantastic uh, culmination of, of skills and talents and responsibilities where you're able to both oversee that and perhaps as an extension or maybe as a genesis, look at sales excellence. So I want to talk all about the center of those two things and how that has formed over time industry-wise and Tabitha-wise. But I want to start earlier. You got into customer experience like 20 years ago. We, and listeners, we do a little bit of prep here, so I know this is true when I say this. In your own words, you said that at that point, CX really wasn't considered a real job. Why? And also, what changed? I think part of it is because many companies really struggled with, you know, either we care about customers, and, you know, of course we do, but that's what customer support does, um, or they were not really thinking about the benefits a company and you know the shareholders can get from being able to systemically improve customer experience because a lot of the the math and the science and and really the behavioral understanding around hey if you have a better experience whether that's in B2C or B2B you're going to have more trust and you're going to want more of that same experience whether it's a it's a product or it's a solution or you know you're you're out at your favorite restaurant and so it's that really growing of understanding that you can actually alter that experience and alter it for the better. And it can have a beneficial impact for not just your customers, but for your business and your bottom line. I, first of all, speaking from like 2021 time, like today, uh, I completely agree with that. And it also makes me, I just can't really get my brain around that because nowadays, the customer experience broadly is so central to whether you live or die in this tech world, product world, brand world, doesn't matter. And getting to the story of the customer and the story of the person is so much more important than the days of your, where you're maybe, you know, spouting about all the features of something like a, a product or a good or even a, or even a service. Um, you know, the term chief customer officer, I don't even, I, I had never heard that until even a couple of years ago. And I, again, I just keep coming back to that question. Why? So once again, I'm glad you have, I'm glad to have you here. You specialize, and this is a term that I actually had not heard before, um, even though it makes complete sense, in human-centered design. Now, to me, like if I'm the lay person just like looking at this from 
10,000 feet up, I say like human centered design. Yeah. Like humans are doing everything. So duh. But can you help me learn? Because obviously that means something a little bit different in your neck of the woods. And maybe we should use like that software world as a, as a filter. Um, because I have a follow-up question, uh, which is related to their resources versus their design capabilities. But can we start by defining that term human centered design? What is that? Yeah, in its essence, if you think about any type of, of change that you've either participated in or had you know, happened to you when you worked for a company or um, it really maybe you were leading that change and it didn't turn out quite the way you thought it would. And you thought to yourself, well, I don't understand. Like we we made all the right process changes. Maybe we make the right tool changes. We, we told people they needed to be different. We communicated why, why we're doing this. Maybe we even trained you to do things differently. And then it just didn't really work the way we thought it would. Um, at its heart, um, that's where human-centered design, which really leads to human-centric transformation, has a true impact. Because you think about it's not what people say they're going to do. It's what they actually do. Um, which is why so many, you know, fitness clubs across the globe make a large part of their profits from the people who buy a membership and rarely or never go. Um, why would you do that if you actually want to go to the gym and work out or you have a purpose for it? Why do so many people buy it and don't use it? And that's a great example of human-centered design about understanding why people do what they do and then designing for the outcome you want in mind. Probably one of my favorites everyone has seen is you might picture two sidewalks where they come to a T and then you see a trail through the grass that cuts the corner of those sidewalks. That's human-centered design too, because they built those sidewalks to just follow a little orderly line. If people don't follow your orderly little lines, they actually follow the path of least resistance or the path that really interests them the most. And when you do human-centered design, you have to take the time to figure that out, not just on the customer side, but on the partner side, if you have partners, and on the employee side. And sales is a great example of that. You can teach your salespeople challenger, for example, but if they don't get value from it and they don't connect to it, they're not going to sell via the challenger method because you didn't actually change how they wanted to sell. You just taught them something else and they'll just take whatever they want from that and go forward. And that may not be the outcome you actually want. That's a great analogy, by the way. I'm thinking about those sidewalks and beaten paths. I see that all the time in like, I don't know, uh, popular internet blogs. They'll say, hey, this was a picture of like the school campus. Colleges do this a lot, right? It, and that's the human-centered design, except some schools are actually, get, they get ahead of the curve and they're like, we're not going to pave any sidewalks here until like, we let our students come beat through the grass here because we know where they want to walk. So we're just going to pave where they want to walk. Um, that's sort of like nicely responsive human-centered design. Now, I admittedly, I, I do see it less or maybe not as consistently in tech. So, uh, you know, the question I to me just comes back to why again, only because, here's that resources question coming back at you. Um, you know, so many of these large tech organizations uh, have, and actually, if you listen to their earnings call, sometimes they'll flaunt having all of this cash on hand resources that they can use to get towards that human-centered design, to get smarter about it. 
Um, they clearly have the capability to do it. Why is it still not as consistently human-centered as it sounds like we should intuitively have? I mean, is it because it takes the proverbial years to beat the path in the grass? Is it something that, you know, investors can't see immediately, so they don't respond very well to it? I mean, why might that get all mucked up despite that, despite the billions of dollars that some of these folks have? And usually, you know, there are three typical reasons you would find why that happens. One of them is you didn't start with human-centered design when you built your technology. You didn't try to think about what's the easiest way to put this together or what's the easiest way to onboard someone into my software. And you didn't look about the fact that, oh, gosh, maybe not everybody does it the same. So you only built one path. To go back and build another path, let's say that there's, you know, people have different needs and maybe two or three are the most common and you should actually build for all of those. Um, It's expensive to go back and to change. And you have to know like, well, is it really worth it to invest in that? What's the ROI of that investment of that change building an additional path, for example? Um, Or is it better to just say, I think it's good enough and I have other problems I'd rather solve. So that's one reason. Another is, you know, for many people, they're not really interested in that part of the investment. They might be much more interested in, yeah, but where else could I spend that money? And it's going to be more things that we think are more strategic value. And if the customers continue to buy, despite the experience not being that great, There's no incentive for them to change and they will keep investing their money somewhere else. And the third is often that companies don't understand which problem to work on first. So maybe they actually do care about customers and they do want to invest, but they get so much feedback, but they really don't know which thing is most important and how do I know which one to work on? Because you can't solve all of the problems. And so those are typically the three that you would see And I think a good example is we've all hunted on the internet for a support um, phone number because we needed to call support. Now, I don't know how many um, people out there who are listening like to pick up the phone and call. Uh, I'm one of those human behavior people that does not. I will do a lot to try and avoid calling support, not because there aren't great support people, but I'm just not a big phone person. And that is one of those dual path designs. Like some people would prefer to chat. Some people prefer to call. Some people would prefer to write it down um, or search for themselves. And if you enable all of those things to be equally present, but well-designed, then you actually will do what many support centers are trying to do, which is avoiding the cases because customers who don't want to call are going to do a lot not to. And they'll, they'll work very hard to make sure they can get to the right answer. The easier you make it for them to do, but not block the phone call for those who really prefer that. That's where you're really thinking about how you balance out your resources more effectively. And it's just understanding what people want and then being willing to make that investment. It's not always an easy decision because there's a lot of competition inside any company for the money that you might need to, to drive that type of change. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's, that's for sure. By the way, I, I you know, I, I like talking on the phone, you know, kind of the way the listeners are going to pick up this conversation is kind of like a phone call. I get two sides, but let me tell you something. I, I, I'm glad that they came up with that dual design with that chat simply because I want to 
put the question out there. I want somebody to listen to it. And frankly, I don't want to hold the phone up and have the hold music for 10, 15 minutes. I might get put on internet hold, but I want it to be silent over there in some window that I can't see. And then I'll come back to it. I'll compartmentalize. You know what I mean? I think that's very smart. Um, so, <laughs> man, I, I, I don't know how to make elegant analogies to like other parts of experience, probably because I'm not an expert and I don't do this every day. But, um, but yeah, very, very good call. And also smartly pointed out that if you didn't start this way, it's like, well, if you built a railroad and now you're saying, well, we really should have built this other railroad like a hundred years ago. Well, um, that's an awfully tall mountain to climb. And if instead you say, oh, well, we're going to put this really great grease on the railroad, right? Well, then you've just taken and made faster, maybe more efficient or maybe polished a inefficient path. Um, so I completely get that. And nowadays it makes sense why if you're going to start something new, you got to start looking customer first. You got to start with that beaten path as opposed to just like paving a sidewalk that you hope that people end up walking down. Uh, and, and you're a, a champion of this as well. I know that in your view, customer experience should touch every part of the org. And I'll, I'll go back to my first, so my first ever job was in, was in tech sales. Uh, it was an analytics software. And me, frankly, being a sales guy, sales guys always have a bit of a chip on their shoulder. I was thinking, oh, well, sales should touch every part of the org. Now, that's not, uh, not the way to go. But, you know, I also didn't really have a great reasoning for it. I know you have a great reasoning for why having customer experience everywhere can actually help to contribute to sales growth, to organization growth, as opposed to organizations where customer experience is sort of like in their own vertical, or I guess like in their in, in a more siloed practice. So I'd like to dive into that next. In your experience, how has CX being everywhere contributed to positive growth such that you can't live without it? Mm. Well, you know, if you think about it, prospect becomes aware of the brand and the brand creates a promise at that point. And from the moment that they move from the promise with their expectations that it's built to the time that they speak to a salesperson is really pivotally important because that's where the experience that they have needs to start fulfilling those expectations that the brand made. And if you do all things well, that the salesperson genuinely understands what the customer needs and the experience they have being sold to and the experience they have with what they purchased and if they needed support or implementation or there was delivery involved, whatever those post-sale activities are, if they all continue to fulfill the expectation of that promise, then you're delivering on the customer experience that makes them become advocates of whatever they purchased from you. And then they're going to want to recommend it to other people. And you see this a lot in, um, in car buying, right? I think car salesmen have gotten quite the reputation over the years. And so people have an expectation, even when they've had good sales experiences buying a car, and certainly I have, um, they really start to be nervous about what that might be. That's why you actually see so many companies already innovating on what the sales process is to the point where, gosh, I was watching an advertisement a couple of weeks ago. And they're like, you don't even have to leave your house to buy the car. The car will just come to you. And I'm like... Wow, that's the ultimate, and not picking up the phone and calling support. You, you guys have those like Carvana out there, uh, listeners. Uh, Tabitha right now is in, is in Sweden. Do they have like, you know, in in the U.S. they have that Carvana. You put the token in the in the machine, and 
you know, that they <laughs> like a gumball, the car comes down and it rolls out to you. I know you got to go somewhere for that. Do you have anything like that out there? I have not seen that. I will say they do a lot around um, car shares. Like you can easily pick up mm. um, cars or scooters or bikes all over the city for, you know, basically just time sharing and renting them out. And they're, you know, they're very big on walking and public transportation here. So you see a lot of those options pretty much everywhere you go through the city. Anyway, I was cutting you off, that, but that reminded me. Go on. No, no. That, I mean, that's the example, right? I think many times um, the best salespeople really like other people and they want to get to know their customer. And they, well, you know, they're not just there to churn their numbers and get through, you know, to whatever they're final outcomes are for the quarter, uh, they're going to really create an experience that, you know, once the customer gets the product or the service that they really, you know, is something the customer can believe in, or it delivers on what was promised to them. And so the salesperson is ultimately um, the biggest part of that promise. So from a customer experience perspective, I love working with marketing on the brand side and the sales teams, because the two of them together really create and set up what the experience has to be. And if it's not in sync, then you're constantly in in trouble because the customer's unhappy almost from the get-go once they get their product or solution. Well, I can speak to that for sure. You know, any growing tech org, and I'm guessing there are tropes out there like the sales and marketing, they're the ones that have the most fun. Well, yeah, but they also project that fun upon the prospects that they hope to become customers. And you certainly don't want to set up a situation where like, oh, this has been a great conversation with John Doe. They really let me through. I had a great time. I got to know him as a person. And now I've got this product software and oh boy, is this lackluster. You know, I, you know, in theory, you would make sure, I mean, not that, you know, maybe clicking through a piece of software might not be as fun as going out to dinner, but it is, you need to have the same uh, mentality going in. So I get it. I totally get it. And by the way, great analogy, because in speaking about great salespeople and cars. I mean, we, we just recently had an episode of, of growth culture where I was asking somebody as a gentleman named Wade, I'll introduce you. He's a good guy. Uh, what their first like real sales experience was first, like sales expert they talked to and what they learned. And it was a gentleman in Nebraska who was selling used cars because that is a, a tough industry and B something from which he learned that building trust with the people is everything. I mean, it is everything because you can't take the guy out to dinner once he's already in your car. So you need to make sure that all those experiences align. This is a great segue too. I know I'm, I'm riffing a little bit here, but this is a great segue because that question to him was like, Hey, who's a great salesperson. Now I want to ask you because clearly you're an expert on the CX side. And I know that that role and the industry has grown over time. And that at one point you were part of what you call a three in a box system. Somebody who is a technical expert, somebody who's going to run the account eventually, and then your salesperson. Maybe it was a little more siloed than it is today, but there was a person there by the name of Brian that might have been the best salesperson you ever knew. I want to learn a little bit more about that person, and then I want to learn what's similar about some of the best salespeople that you've ever worked with. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I just just was emailing Brian the other day, and we've known each other for many, many, many years. Um, and, you know, he really was the person that taught me that someone who is in sales 
um, can have a genuine empathy and kindness as well as incredibly good at negotiating and being able to solve problems. Like he just had all of this um, great people skill sets that I admired um, and it made it fun to, to work for him and, and with him and to see him in action with customers where he was clearly listening and being able to like feedback to them. This is what I heard and here's how we can deliver on what I've heard. It was those types of early experiences are part of what made me love um, the idea of going into customer experience because it really is about listening and learning from what you hear and then acting on what you hear. And that's the best salespeople out there is they listen first um, and then they make sure I reflect that. This is what I heard. This is what you need. Um, And particularly in B2B, right? And then here, here's what we're going to give you. And this is going to fulfill what I've committed to you. Um, And it then makes you want to go back and buy from them again. And I think that in B2B, it's even more complicated because it's not just you making a buying decision. You're also putting your reputation and your company's money on the line when you're making that decision. And if it turns out not to have been a good decision, um, you are going to feel bad. Even if it was you trusted that the salesperson told you the right thing and it didn't turn out to be, um, you're still, it's, it's, it's a real failure, uh, the experience. And it's not something that's going to want you to go back to that company again, even if it wasn't the company's fault. Um, it, it's, it was their salesperson, right? So salespeople are incredibly important in not just starting that relationship well, but in building that relationship to last. Yeah, you got that right. And by the way, I, I've experienced that. Uh, luckily, not from the the worst case side where something goes wrong and they come back and you know it, it's where I feel that the, my reputation has been has been stained or even blemished. But I have felt that on the on the outset of talking to somebody and hearing the mental defense. They want to make the best decision, but they also they're they're putting themselves on the line. You know, they don't they don't want to be responsible for some potentially huge investment that doesn't work. So. Um, I I completely get that and you know great great insight there as to who who makes I, you know some of the things you've just said are similar with what I've observed with some of the best salespeople that I've ever worked with the mentors that I have had and how great is it that you're able to have that perspective uh, as somebody who not only again sees how those great people operate but also is an expert in CX and so the final question I want to ask is a bit of a forward looking one uh, just you know in industry-wide, maybe just business-wide, even though that's, I guess, worldwide. Looking ahead, you know, how do you think that businesses will will seek to let this continue to permeate, to allow customer experience to come more to the forefront, to allow this human-centered design to grow? Um, because at the end of the day, sure, every new company may adopt this, or we hope, um, but there's still got to be a heck of a lot of change based on the the railroads and sidewalks analogy that we gave before. So I'd like to close by asking you, what do you think will happen in the future with regard to the ways that businesses allow CX to permeate everything? That's a good question. And I, I really, when I look forward, I would say that there, there are probably two trends that are likely to drive more investment in customer experience and wanting to have that embedded in the way you do business. And the first one is, Uh, There are a lot of companies out there 
that are investing in transformation across their company, whether it's digital transformation or it is some other type of significant transformation or change. And that's where that human-centered design that makes it better for your customers, your partners, your employees, and drives operational excellence is the sweet spot for making transformation genuinely stick and return on that investment. And you can probably ask many companies who have made a pass at transformation or really struggled um, why they think that they've struggled. And the biggest part is because the people have not changed, which means the path laid out for them is not the one that really worked well and it made it easy for them to make that change. The second factor I would go into is that, you know, competition breeds change. We all know that. And as, you know, more disruption happens in different industries, um, as new competitive entrants come in, they can take that path we talked about earlier. Like they can actually see, hmm, yeah, that's the old school way of doing it. But I know that people would rather do it this way. And we're going to take this shortcut path, this well-beaten path, as you described it. And we're going to build for that to begin with. And people will go, oh, well, that's exciting. Um, and it certainly is. It's, you know, those classic stories that, that everybody's heard. Um, Netflix beating out Blockbuster. That was not something that Blockbuster really saw coming. But certainly Netflix went Nobody likes to get in the car and go to the store and have to look for their videos. And then they have to drive back to drop them off. It just isn't something people enjoy. What they want to do is find great movies and be able to watch them in the comfort of their home. How do I make it easier for them to do that? And it's that type of competitive innovation that really is centered around the customer experience. And as more companies seek to do that, either from the beginning or to redesign and transform um, so that they're that way now, they're going to need more help from people who do customer experience to really think differently and to drive change that sticks. I know there are listeners here who are both making their way up sales ladder, whatever that means, looking for their first big win. And there are also folks who are leading billion dollar organizations, board members listening to this right now. If you are on the cutting edge, congrats. I hope you continue to pave the sidewalk in the proper beaten way. And if you are thinking about how to get there, I'd play this episode back from the beginning <laughs> because there may just be a Netflix that comes a knocking. In the meantime, Tabitha, thank you so much for sharing all these secrets with me. I, I didn't know, I mean, I did my research, but I didn't know that much about how deeply CX should be a part of the org before this. And you have taken me to school. So thank you for the lesson. I'm happy to do it. And it's something I love to do. So it's always fun to be able to have a chance to share a little bit about it. Thanks for tuning in today. To hear more conversations just like this one, head on over to wherever you get your podcasts and search growth culture. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to let us know how you liked this one. To learn more about Dedicated.ai and our other events, Visit us at our website by the same name or send us an email at jl at dedicated.ai. We'd love to hear from you about what you'd love to hear from us. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Connor, signing off.